0: Good morning. It is April the 26th, 2020. My name is Bob Lawrence, one of the Bible class teachers at the Anchorage Church of Christ, and I'm joining you this morning from home during the 2020 pandemic in which the world is starting to perhaps open up again, and I thought it would be appropriate to bring you Bible class, even though we are still in quarantine, uh, bring you Bible class from our porch uh, today. As the sun is out, it's springtime, it's a reminder that uh, that the, the world will soon be back to normal and one day we'll be through this. And it's also a reminder that one day we will be able to worship again together uh, as a congregation in what is by definition a congregate setting and won't that be a celebration when we can worship and study together? Well this morning uh, for Bible class, we are still in the book of Second Timothy, Perhaps it's appropriate that during this time when we are on a form of lockdown and house arrest, that we are reading books that were written by the Apostle Paul during the time that he was in prison. We're going through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we'll eventually hit Titus and Philemon. And and many of these are letters that were written while Paul was under a form of incarceration and writing to, uh, at least in the case of 2 Timothy, writing back to Timothy uh, from a, a setting much like we're in right now, where Paul could not have free contact with other people. And so maybe that makes his words a little more uh, uh, pertinent to today. So if you would take a Bible and and uh, and open it, I tell you what first, instead of going to second Timothy, open to your table of contents because I, I would like today to show you how the book of Second Timothy fits into the larger canon of scriptures that are your Bible. So take a Bible and open it there to the table of contents. Now, perhaps when you first uh, first started reading the Bible, you noticed that you were not reading just one book, but rather the Bible is a collection of different books and different types of books. So when you open your Bible, as you see in your table of contents, you're looking not at one book, you're actually walking into a library. It's as if you're about to walk different aisles and read books that are written by different authors at different times, uh, perhaps from different perspectives. Some people have said the Bible is much like an anthology that brings together uh, different writers. And that's an important thing to know, that when we talk of, about the holy scriptures or the writings of scripture, uh, we're talking about books that were written over a span of about 1500 years by many different authors writing in these different periods of time, all of them giving a different perspective on one message, and that is how the world has fallen, how God uh, has sent his son as a savior for the world, and how God is making the world right again. It's all one continuous story, uh, but seen from different perspectives. I think it's helpful when you look at the Old Testament books, to notice that there are 39 different books. Uh, Sometimes we split up those books into different categories and talk about the books of law, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, followed by books of history, and then uh, the writings or the books of poetry, followed by the prophets. Now, the uh, Jewish writers, and in the first century, they probably would have thought of their Old Testament canon of scriptures in three different categories, and they would have called it the law, the writings, and the prophets, and they may split up some of the books a little differently than the way that, that your Bible reads. But the point is that when they thought of the Old Testament, or what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, um, they recognized that some of those books were books that were laying down the, the law of God. And there were other books that were giving a historical perspective, and they read very much like any modern history book. This king lived at this time, did this action, went to war with this king, and this was the outcome of that war. Those are books of history. And then there are the writings or the books of poetry, specifically books that, uh, that present in a beautiful uh, poetic form the uh, emotions that go along with following God, the questions that come up for any human being who seeks God and, and wants to understand God. And so those are the books uh, we would call poetry. So that's your Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, when you turn over to the book of Matthew, you notice that the uh, books begin with four historical biography-type books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these are different perspectives on the life of Jesus Christ. Those are followed by the book of Acts, which is a historical look at the very first followers of Christ. And then the uh, New Testament transitions to a series of letters. And so you read the book of Romans, there's 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These are larger letters that were written by, uh, by the Apostle Paul. And then there are, some, uh, there are some letters written by other writers, the book of Hebrews, uh, for example, or 1st and 2nd Peter, or 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. These are letters that are written by other apostles. But the bulk of the letters that you read in the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul, the very uh, uh, man who wrote this letter that we're reading in 2 Timothy, and at the end of all of those letters, he begins to write letters not to entire churches or to large groups of people, but he writes a few very personal uh, letters, and one of those is this letter of 2 Timothy, where Paul, sitting in prison, uh, picks up his pen, puts it to paper, and he writes his final letter, at least the last letter that we have any copies of, uh, and he pens this letter to his son in the faith the young man who had followed him all this time named Timothy. And this has been a special reading of that letter. If you have not done so already, take about 10 minutes and make sure you've read this letter as it was intended to be read from the very beginning all the way to the end. Well, last week we talked about how how Paul had encouraged Timothy uh, to make sure that if he presents himself to God, to present himself the way That a person would present a coin in the marketplace if it were authentic. Do you remember that if, if a coin in the ancient world was tested, if it was weighed, if it was evaluated and proven to be authentic, then that coin in the marketplace would be called Dokimon. And that means that it was tested and approved. And if the coin was found to be fraudulent, if it was a counterfeit, if uh, someone had shaved off the edges and tried to still present it in the marketplace, and it was considered to be uh, inauthentic, then they would say that that coin is a do- doki month, and it was not a- allowed in the-, in the marketplace. And of course, the philosophers picked up that idea, and Paul even uses this concept and says, just as a coin can be authentic, can be tested and approved, so can people. And people, just like coins, have certain characteristics. And if a person in their life uh, is is tested and proven to be who they say they are, to know what they say they know, then they are considered doki-mon. But if a person, over time, for whatever reason or because of external pressures, allows their character to be shaved off just a little bit of a time at a time, or as Paul would say, if a person allows the uh, allows their faith to be just shaved off, a little lie here, cutting a few corners here, uh, bending to the praise of men here, and and a little bit at a time that coin is shaved off, then Paul would say that just like a coin, that person can be uh, a dokimon. And you'll remember last week where Paul writing to Timothy said, this is going to be tough. Uh, you You are in a fight in a ministry that is not easy. But like a good coach, he says, you get in the game, you be tough. Uh, and do your best to present yourself to one as as uh, approved before God and he says you present yourself as dokimon to God not needing to be ashamed but one who correctly handles the word of truth and then he says to Timothy don't get in into arguments with people he says don't be someone who quarrels because that was probably the way that uh that much of the culture ran back then but he says instead when when people oppose you gently instruct them in what is true and what is real with the hopes that God will rescue them that God will lead them to repentance and that they will turn away from the devil the idea is that they'll they will be able to put themselves back into the hands of God and escape the trap of the devil and that's what picks up our reading for today in the 3rd chapter of 2 Timothy so now turn back over to the letter of 2 Timothy, and let's read chapter 3 today. So in chapter 3, Paul picks up this same theme, telling Timothy how he is to interact with those who oppose him. And he says, but mark this, or understand this, or know this, that there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power paul does here what he does in so many letters where he likes to uh, to write out a list sometimes called an ethical list and he says there are those in the last days that you'll notice uh, have each of these characteristics and then paul gives one command he says at the end of that verse have nothing to do with them the actual word he uses there is a a word to turn and he says for, for those types of people, when you, when you come head to head with people with these characteristics, uh, literally the word is turn away from them. Uh, in other words, don't engage, uh, walk, walk away. That is not a fight that's worth fighting. It's not a hill worth dying on. And if anything, it will be distracting. And then he goes, goes on to say, those people are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Have you ever known people like that? Who are very intelligent, very smart people, always learning, but not able to ever come to know what is real, what is true. They tend to be skeptics. Uh, and, and being a skeptic is not a bad thing in most areas of study and most disciplines even of science. We expect a person to be skeptical, to ask questions, to question what is uh, what is known, to question experiments, to question bias and prejudice, to make sure that what we're learning is, is in fact true. And so being skeptical is, is important. But as some philosophers have said, uh, skepticism is, is more like a park bench. It's a good place to sit down for a while, but it's not it's not going to get you anywhere. And so skepticism has to be followed with further testing and further learning. And the pursuit is not the pursuit of a position where we say we don't know or we are agnostic, but rather a position of knowing what is actually true. And Paul says there are people who uh, are always learning, but never quite get to the truth. Let me read you a couple quotes. You may have heard these, of these individuals Uh, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist and evolutionary biologist from over in England, and he said in one of his writings, a book called The God Delusion, he says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, it's just plain weird, as you would expect of chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors editors and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries and that's his description of of scripture so that when he uh, opens up the bible and reads it his conclusion is well this is just it's just weird and it's just a collection of books that are written by many different authors that didn't even know each other and it's somewhat of a chaotic mix of books uh, and so he would have a very different view of scripture than what I have, and I read the same Bible. I, I have uh, an understanding of scripture, much like he says, that it's written, the words are actually written by many different people over a long span of time. But he and I come to a very different conclusion about scripture. There's another scholar named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a uh, professor of, of theology at the University of North Carolina. He wrote a book, How Jesus Became God, the exaltation of a Jewish preacher from Galilee. And in that book, he says that the idea that Jesus rose on the third day was originally a theological construct, not a historical piece of information. The whole story was in fact a legend that is the burial and discovery of an empty tomb where these were tales that later Christians invented to persuade others that the resurrection indeed happened. And, And that's his... His conclusion uh, as a as a professor of theology at the University of North Carolina. And again, Dr. Ehrman is a very intelligent, intelligent person. Um, but he comes to a very different conclusion. He grew up reading the Bible just as I read it. He grew up knowing these events or reading about these events the same as, as I do. Uh, but we come we come to we come to a different conclusion. And, and that's the point that I wanted you to see, because in your in your life, uh, perhaps in your school, or at your work, uh, or in your profession, you you will run across people who are opposed to what we read in Scripture, and they read the very same uh, read the very same Scripture, but either because of bias or prejudice, or a previous experience in their life, or a desire to hold on to something that they want to that they don't want to let go of, they're very reluctant to allow themselves to learn. What is is real to uh, learn? What is learn? What is true? And so the point there is that, that these kinds of statements are not made by unintelligent people or unlearned people. Very intelligent people can uh, can learn and read Scripture, but miss the point. And that, if you understand that, helps you understand what Paul says very uh, very next to Timothy when he says that uh, there are those who are always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just like those two examples I read for you. And then Paul says, it's just like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So also these men oppose the truth. And so Paul mentions two men, Janus and Jambres, that you won't read about anywhere in scripture. Uh, Paul is probably referring here to two names that others in that period of time would have uh, recognized. Uh, and you, you get a hint of who he's talking about in Exodus chapter 7. Uh, that's the scene where Moses and Aaron, you might remember, in Egypt, have been sent back to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. They're preparing for this great escape you know, from Egypt. And there uh, they were told before Pharaoh to take Aaron's staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it would become a snake. And so they do. Uh, they, they, they tell Pharaoh, they pass on the message from God and approve that this was a message from God, Aaron takes his staff, throws it down before Pharaoh, and it becomes a slithering snake. Well, there were magicians in Egypt standing there around Pharaoh who took their staffs. And Pharaoh turns to them and says, what do you say to this? And those magicians took their staff, threw them down, and they also became snakes. But what happened next is telling. Aaron's staff that had become a snake swallowed up the... Snakes of the other magicians, and that happens with the next two plagues. Remember that that scene is followed by ten different plagues that God sends on Egypt. Uh, The next one is that the rivers turn to blood. The magicians are able to recreate something like that, Uh, and then there's this plague of frogs. The magicians are able to recreate something like that, and then uh, God sends gnats over the whole land. And there's a point at which the magicians just stand back and say, "This is the finger of God, and we cannot." we cannot oppose it. Well, uh, tradition has it, and there are early uh, writers from that period of time that say that two of those magicians were Janus and Jambres. And so probably what Paul is pointing out here is that, is that in Egypt, there were very intelligent, well-trained, uh, what today would be considered uh, high scholars and even scientists, who were able to recreate in some way what uh, Moses and Aaron were able to do by the hand of God, but they could only go so far. And eventually, their, the limitations of what they knew and what they're able to do were fully exposed. And so Paul points to them and says, you know, there's going to be people during your life, Timothy, and by extension, in your life as well, who are opposed to what is true. And and it will be just like Janice and Jambres, who, you know, they, they may be able to get so far in their learning, and even to some extent, explain the world that God made, and to manipulate uh, things about the physical world in order uh, for us to live and, and to enjoy life. And so there will be people who are very intelligent, very learned, um, but they can only go so far, just like Janus and Jambres. And then Paul says, these are men of depraved minds, meaning incomplete minds, or uh there's a, there's a sense in which their, uh, uh, their minds are untested. And as far as faith is concerned, they are, my scripture says, rejected. So read that line. Now, in your Bible, it might say that, um, that these are men of depraved mind. And as far as faith is concerned, uh, they are disqualified. Uh, my version, this is the NIV, says as far as faith is concerned, they are rejected. Do you know what that word rejected is? He actually says here that as far as faith is concerned, they are a Dokimon. In other words, there are people who are very intelligent, very well read, who will be skeptical, who uh, in their learning will know a lot. But when it comes to faith, they're going to be like that coin that has the edges shaved away. And when it comes to the time of testing, when it comes to faith, they will be. Tested but not approved. There will be a Dokimon. And so you see the contrast. Last week we read where Paul told Timothy, uh, Do your best to present yourself as Dokimon to God. And then here he says, There will be those who oppose you, uh, who, who are of a depraved mind, who before God and because of faith, or when it comes to faith, are a Dokimon. But they will not get very far because, just as in the case of Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. There will be a point at which even the most intelligent, most well-read, most learned people of every generation have to take a step back and say what we are seeing uh, can only be because of the hands, because of, uh, it is the hand of God. And Paul continues in his letter to Timothy saying, you, however, notice the contrast. You, however, know, to, know all about my teaching my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured. And so you'll remember a couple of weeks back when we talked about those missionary uh, travels of Paul, and especially with Barnabas early on when they made their way to Lystra that first time, they healed a man in the city of Lystra, And at first the the people uh, thought they were gods. And so they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes. And of course, Paul and Barnabas responded to that in anger and say, no, we're men just like you. And they tore their clothes and the people turned against them. And they ended up stoning Paul, probably Barnabas too. But when they left Paul, uh, uh, assuming that he was going to be dead, the Christians are said to have circled around him. And we think that one of those Young men standing there in the circle around Paul was Timothy. And this might be a reference to that when Paul says to Timothy, You know what I went through. You know the persecutions. And then he goes on to say, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now think about that. If you choose to follow Christ, you will endure hardship. There may be times when Uh, You are denied access to a job where you may lose a job, where you may not get into a program that you've applied for, or may not get into a school that you'd like to get into because people find out that you are a follower of Christ and that you have that conviction that this is true. And for that reason, uh, you will suffer hardship. There may be those who oppose you uh, very strongly because you believe in Christ. And Paul says that's part of the deal. When you sign up to follow Christ, uh, when you seek to live a godly life, understand that you will endure hardship, that you will be uh, persecuted. But Paul says that's not reason to stop. He says evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. I like that word used in this translation uh, where Paul tells Timothy uh, to continue in what you have become become convinced of. The word convinced there is the same root word as the word uh, faith, pistoo. It means a firm conviction in the truth of something. And that's an important thing to remember, that faith is not a suspension of belief. It's not holding something to be true in spite of evidence. To have faith in something or someone is to have a firm conviction in the truth of something because you've seen the evidence and you've been convinced. And it's important to know, and Paul would say, that very intelligent, very smart people uh, recognize that there are things that you can be absolutely convinced of. Can I show you an example of one of those? You might have heard of a scientist named Michael Faraday. lived back in the 1800s. And in the early 1800s, Michael Faraday was famous because of his discoveries in the area of magnetism. He was both a chemist and a, a physicist. And those of you who have studied chemistry or physics will remember Faraday even has his own constant called the Faraday Constant. And even those of you who are not physicists or chemists, uh, every time that you use an electric motor, know that, that you have uh, Michael Faraday to think for that in his early discoveries and early work. On the use of magnets, but did you know that Michael Faraday was also an elder in his church? In fact, there's the story. One day, he was being given a uh, an award because of his discoveries in the area of magnetism, and it was a it was a standing room only kind of affair. And they uh, he gave his presentation; people in awe, uh, you know, were applauding him for the things that he talked about. And then the a person giving the award came up to the stand to announce. That, that he was being given this honor, and they turned to give him the honor, and he was gone, because it turned out it was a a midweek uh, affair, and he had to make his way back to Bible study. He was the elder of a, a church that was an early form of one of the Restoration Movement churches in Scotland, and uh, and he went he 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 left <laughs> the the uh, the the whole ceremony. Because he had a commitment that was more important to him. And his whole life he held this commitment. And they say that on his deathbed, after all these amazing discoveries, somebody approached him and asked if he had any speculations about what life was like after death. And this was his answer. He said, speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. That he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You might remember that very verse we read earlier in the book of uh, in the letter of Second Timothy. And in Michael Faraday, this incredible scientist, this incredible mind, uh, at the end of his life, after a long life of service, says there are some things of which we need not speculate. We can be absolutely certain uh, in the one in whom we believe. And be persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed to him until that till that final day. Well, I think that's what Paul was pointing Timothy back to when he said uh, to him to uh, to continue in what he had learned and become convinced of, because he says to Timothy, you know those whom you from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures from the time he was an infant. Uh, The word infant there that's used in this translation is actually the word for embryo or fetus. It brings to mind this idea that uh, Timothy, even when he was still in the womb, and you remember his mother, uh, whose name was uh, uh, Eunice, and his uh, grandmother Lois, uh, you, you you get this idea of Eunice, this this young early follower of Christ, uh, reading the Holy Scriptures to Timothy, even while he was still in the in the womb. And then certainly as he as he grew up and learned how to pronounce those Hebrew letters, and then to read the Hebrew, uh, from the time he was young, Timothy knew these Holy Scriptures. And it's interesting that the word "holy" there. in in the term holy scriptures, is the same root word as the word for temple. Uh, These are the the official readings of the temple area. And so for Timothy, the scriptures uh, were not letters that you and I might read from the New Testament. Uh, Timothy did not have access to those. Uh, He might have access to other letters that Paul wrote to him. Uh, But Timothy may or may not have read one of those early gospels that you have read, but he didn't really have to. Um, the the events that and the the sayings of Jesus that you read about in the Gospels, Timothy got to hear from those apostles who actually heard it from Jesus. Timothy got to, he, he learned all the things that you read about in Luke. Timothy would have learned from Luke. Uh, all the things that you read about in the book of John, Timothy would have learned most likely from John when John was in Ephesus. And so when Paul here is talking about Timothy knowing these holy scriptures, he's most likely referring to uh, those holy writings and the law and the prophets of what we would call the Old Testament. And Paul says, you have known these from the time you were in your infancy, uh, and that these holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. It is those very scriptures that teach you about how God is making the world right again, how he is saving the world through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul ends with this amazing verse. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every Good work. Well, there's an important word in there. That's a special word where Paul says, "Do you realize that all Scripture is breathed by God? Is God breathed?" Did you know that in Greek, that's one word? Uh, they took the word God, theo, and the word uh, that means to inspire, or the word for breath, and they put it together into the word theo which uh, which is one word that just means breathed by God. And it's meant to bring to mind the fact that when God speaks something, uh, uh, worlds come into existence. So you imagine going back to the beginning of time when the earth was formless and void and God said, let there be light. And all things end up coming into existence at at that moment. When God speaks, things come into existence. But when God breathes, things come to life. And that brings to mind that moment when that lump of clay that God had formed uh, is is lying there on the ground and God breathes into that man the breath of life. It's the same word there used. And just as as God breathed in uh, life to that man, we're told here that God breathes life into scripture. So when God speaks things, uh, or excuse me, God speaks, he speaks things into existence. Uh, but when he breathes, he breathes things into life, or you might say he breathes life into, into things. And that's what Paul says happens in scripture. Have you thought about that? That, that scripture itself has a living center. And whenever you read scripture, whenever you open uh, your Bible to a a passage, whenever you open to read a Psalm, whenever you're reading the books of history, whatever the scripture you're reading, that that scripture has a living center. And that's your, that's your goal is to find that living center and to know him better. You know, there was a time when Jesus was speaking to people who doubted who he was, and he was uh, He was explaining uh, who he really was. And he says, you know, you search diligently all the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that tell you about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to get life. And Jesus was telling them that I am the living center of all these scriptures that you read. And so, so Paul is saying and reminding Timothy that there is a, there, uh, when you read scripture, you, are, you are, are reading something that comes from the heart of God, that is breathed of God, that has life to it. And you're not just reading words. Uh, the, the learning of scripture is not a rote exercise in simply committing things to memory. It is about finding that living uh, center, which is God himself. And so Paul tells Timothy and reminds him that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. It's useful for teaching, it's useful for rebuking, for correcting, for training in all righteousness, so that Timothy, this man of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is good equipment. Uh, This is a beautiful day. Uh, The Family and I are going to go out today and enjoy being outside. I hope you get a chance to be outside with your family. We're thinking about going for a hike. You know, whenever we go hiking, we go into our garage, into that, uh, that, that mess of a storage area that has all of our outdoor equipment, and we, we pull out the tubs, and we pull out the equipment, and we dig through and pull out whatever we need for whatever hike we're going on. Because here in Alaska, we have a saying that there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. And if you're properly equipped, you can face just about anything that we uh, could get into here in Alaska. And that's what Paul says about Scripture. That whenever you open the Word of God, you have an opportunity to walk into that, that garage of your soul and to pull out that very equipment that you need. That to know Scripture is to be thoroughly equipped for any good work. And that brings me back to Michael Faraday. Uh, I told you about the scientist back in the 1800s who had discovered electromagnetism. Do you you know what he said about scripture? Remember, he was an an elder in his church. He was a teacher in their small congregation. And in teaching uh, his church, he would teach them about the word of God. And one day he had written a letter to another scientist. And in that letter, he talked about scripture. And he wrote this. He said, the Christian who is taught by God finds his guide in the word of God and commits the keeping of his soul in the hands of God. He looks for no assurance beyond what the word of God can give him, and if his mind is troubled by the cares and fears which may assail him, he can go nowhere but to the throne of grace and to scripture. No outward manifestation can give him either instruction or assurance to him, nor can any outward opposition or trouble diminish his confidence for Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness, but to them who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Christian religion is a revelation and that revelation is the word of God. Well, that is a word from someone who had discovered uh, an important part of God's creation, but more than just finding how God had, had used this force of magnetism in the creation of the world, Uh, Michael Faraday found the living, breathing center of all of creation. And he found it not just in the world that he studied, he found it in the living center of the word of God. And and he uh, passed on in that letter the same thing that Paul was telling to Timothy when he said, all scripture is God breathed. And to, to know that scripture and to spend time in that scripture is to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, may God bless the reading of his word today and our desire and our attempts at putting it into practice this week. I hope this week that you will enjoy the blessings that God provides and that you will be well.